Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to our new weekly Soul of the Parsha class. Uh, we are now entering the week of Parshas Vaigash, one before last Parsha in the book of Genesis, a very dramatic Parsha. And our topic for today is we want to get a good understanding of two very elusive concepts which together uh, form the most elusive concept in Judaism, possibly. And these are the concepts of Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David. We want to try and get a good handle on what these two notions, figures, signify, what they mean. It's not going to be, by any means, a comprehensive or exhaustive class on this topic, because it's a very, very big topic. But we are going to try to uh, wrap our heads as much as we can in one hour around these two figures. And actually, there's even a third figure. And altogether, they form, we can call them the three faces of Mashiach. What are the three faces of Mashiach, which are also three aspects of redemption as a whole, the whole notion, the whole idea that the world is in need of redemption, that we're trying to move towards redemption. In the Jewish tradition, all this is personified in the ideal figure of the Mashiach, but the Mashiach breaks down into several figures. So one of them is obviously more uh, central than the other ones, and this is Mashiach ben David, this is the main Mashiach. But there's also the Mashiach ben Yosef, and there's also a third figure, which will remain unnamed for the time being, but we'll get to him later on. So this is what we want to uh, to begin with. Before we go into the Parsha and how this is reflected in the Parsha, and how the Parsha has a platform to go into this, uh, I just want to make, add a short introduction, um, which re re relates to the fact that many people are interested in this topic, uh, not always for the best of reasons. Sometimes it's for reasons that are, relatively speaking, more external. They really, they don't really get to the main point of why we really should be studying this topic. So I think for many people, the reason they're interested in this concept that of Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David, right? the idea is that before the actual Mashiach comes, Mashiach ben David, he will be preceded by another figure, who is, which is called, who is called Mashiach ben Yosef. So I think many people are interested in this is because they're trying to pinpoint what in current, in our, in our current days, in, in current affairs, which group or stage of history or a certain person or a certain uh, movement, uh, we can call them Mashiach ben Yosef, and this would give us the feeling that Mashiach ben David is right around the corner, and we have the key. We know, we know at least who the first figure is, and that could lead us to who the second figure is. And 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 it has very much to do with with wanting to feel a very positive feeling, and actually one that's encouraged very much by Hasidut to feel that Mashiach is right around the corner, that it's not some something in the far future, it's something that can happen now. However, trying to learn these, these very deep ideas that are hidden within these two figures, in a way that we're, we're rushing towards trying to pinpoint a name, a certain, again, person or movement or, a hap or something that's happening in the world, and say this is the sign, that one of these Mashichim is now coming, uh, bypasses the depth of what we want to get to. And I don't remember if we went into this the, the, for the last week, uh, but we did speak about there being three kinds of dimensions to the world. The first being the spatial dimensions, and then we have the temporal dimension, dimension of time, and then we have the dimension of soul. And the idea is that the the higher we go up these ladders of this this ladder of dimensions, we're also going more on the inside. So we can say that looking for signs of Mashiach on the outside world and the Olam, it, it, there are definitely signs that this is a special time, and that maybe redemption is very very close. 
However, again, that this pipe bypasses the deeper topics, and then we can go further, deeper into this topic and and talk about stages of history and the dynamics of history and what makes this period of time different than other periods of time. And now we're dealing not so much with the world; we're dealing with time, and this is more internal. But the most internal dimension is the dimension of soul, which means that if you want to fully understand this very, again, the most elusive of all Jewish concepts, the concept of Mashiach, which breaks down into these two figures or three figures, um, this we need to, to find these figures inside of us. We need to find the spark of Mashiach within us and how this sparks, how this spark uh, breaks into um, breaks into uh, several aspects again within ourselves, and then as we find this, we're able to get a good, deep understanding of what Mashiach is or and isn't, and what these types of Mashiachim are, and then we can move from that to the dimension of time and the dimension of the world, and try and find hints and allusions and signs. Uh, you know, of what may be happening around the world, again, always with a kind of grain of salt, because we don't, again, it's a very deep and elusive concept. So this is um, uh, kind of another introduction, which is always important for me to add when, when going into this topic. Uh, now let's talk about the Parsha as a whole, and the first segment, because this year we're focusing on the first Aliyah, the first segment, out of seven. So generally, the Parsha, tells us about the uh, Yosef and his brothers being fully reunited. What do I mean by fully reunited? I mean that Yosef is revealing his true identity to his brothers, and what follows is the, is the reunion of Yosef and his father, whom he hasn't seen in 22 years. The previous parasha ended with a kind of cliffhanger, and the cliffhanger was that Yosef, whom the brothers still think is this Egyptian prince or uh, second to the king, uh, he uh, implicated, he, he caused this situation in which uh, he frames, really, his own younger brother, Binyamin, uh, who's his sibling from, from his mother, Rachel, he framed him for stealing his silver cup, all this was just a big ruse in order to tell the brothers that Binyamin must stay on as a slave. And that's how it all ended. And the background is that we know, we all know, that this would totally break Yaakov's heart. And that's how the previous parasha ended. And now it starts with Yehuda approaching. And this is actually the name of the parasha. Vayigash means he approached. Yehuda is approaching Yosef, he still doesn't know that, that this is his, his long-lost brother, the brother that he himself suggested that they would sell to the Ishmaelites, and they, they thought him long you know, gone or dead. He's still unaware of this, he thinks he's the Egyptian prince, and he tells him, he comes and he, he recounts the entire history, and he tells them, you, you simply can't take this Younger, youngest brothers of, uh, brother of ours, it will break our father's heart, and take me instead. And he's making this incredible self-sacrifice. And this is followed by Yosef breaking down in tears, revealing his identity, and they all kiss and hug, and he forgives them for everything that they did. He says all this was by divine providence, that's what led him to Egypt, and now we can save them from the hunger. And he tells them, please, Go back to the land of Canaan, bring my father here, and all of your children, and everyone, and I'm going to take care of you here in Egypt, and they all come. And, and again, there's this moving reunion between Yosef and his father, and the parasha ends with, the, with the, the, this large family, the, all together they, they make up 70 souls, 70 people, they all settle down, in Egypt, in the land of Goshen. This is the story of the parasha, in short. The first segment is the monologue, the beginning of the monologue, it's not even the full monologue, it's the, open, it's the beginning of the monologue that Yehuda uh, says when he approaches Yosef. 
So now the idea is that this meeting, this clash, this Yehuda approaching Yosef is, is extremely deep in its symbolism in Jewish culture and symbology and history. There are two brothers out of many brothers. Uh, Yosef has always been singled out. He was Yaakov's favorite. He was the master of dreams. He was the one who dreamed that they would all bow down before him, and in fact they did. And he was always very special. Yehuda wasn't so special. He was the fourth child. Uh, he wasn't the firstborn. He wasn't the, the chosen one. He wasn't the one who had dreams. But over the past few parashat, he has, his position has elevated gradually, and he becomes the leader. And this is the really the climax of him becoming the leader. Later on, of course, his tribe is going to be the kingly tribe, and King David comes out of Judah. So, w- really what we have here is, and this is what the sages tell us, is that Yosef and Yehuda are the two most kingly souls they're out of all the twelve. They're the, the two, in very different different ways, they're the two sons that are the most kingly in nature. There's something, there's something monarchic about them. They're both leaders, and they're both this huge souls, and now they're clashing. And again, this clash reverberates all around Jewish symbolism and all around Jewish history, and we're going to, to go over this a little bit. But we're going to start with a verse from Zalms, 48, which the sages take as as really standing for reflecting what's going on here. The verse is, first Hebrew, then English, So literally, it means the kings, here are these kings, the two kings or more, who joined forces and advanced together. Right? It's talking about two kings uniting. However, the sages take this verse and they, they read it, as always, in, in, a, in a, an original way. And they say, the two kings here are not working together, they're clashing. And they, they take the verse and they say that these are two kings, and these are Yosef and Yehuda, they are the two kings. And Nu'adu doesn't mean they joined forces, it means they came together, but from opposite directions. And then the second verb they advanced together, or they moved on or passed on together, uh, they take the, the same root, la'avol, it can also be interpreted as meaning anger. Evra is one of the Hebrew words for anger. Meaning they have, it's two kinds of anger, two kinds of energy that's clashing. This is a, a huge clash. And... And the tension, you can cut the tension with a knife, and the sages say that really, if you read between the lines of everything Judah is saying, Judah is threatening Yosef. He's threatening him. If you don't listen to me, I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to kill Pharaoh, and you should beware of me. And this, the sages read between the lines, the way they go into the subtleties of what he says, it's very, on, on the surface, it's very polite, and it's very carefully phrased, but if you look at how at what exactly he's saying, then, for example, he says, don't be angry, and the reason he's saying don't be angry is because I'm going to make you very angry, because I'm very angry. So everything is extremely tense. We have these two kingly figures almost about to clash. And, and the sages also say that this verb to approach, vayigash, could refer to approaching to make war, or approach to make peace, which is the, it's the flip side of war, or a prayer, which also means there's uncertainty here, and you don't know how it's going to unfold. And, of course, it, it all leads, it, it's all good in the end, and Yosef breaks down crying, and they all hug, and it becomes wonderful. But before they hug, there's this very, very strong, powerful tension that needs to be, um, you know, quieted. Uh, there's another Midrash that says that the angels uh, all came down to watch this because they said, oh, look, look, there's a battle going down there between a lion and a bull. Who's the lion and who's the bull? Yehuda is the lion. He's likened to a lion in the next parsha. Yaakov blesses him 
he calls, he likens him to a lion. And Yosef is the bull. He likens Yosef to a bull. So it's like when we watch nature movies and we see a battle between two animals, it's always very exciting. So that's how it was for the angels. The angels all came down to watch this conflict. Again, it's very quiet. It's very tense. There's no actual violence going on, but it's all under the surface very, very powerfully. If we're mentioning Yaakov's uh, blessing, we should also mention the fact that next parsha we see that they get the two longest and richest blessings. It's Yosef and Yehuda who get the longest and richest and in a way most enduring and fullest of blessings. Again, it has to do with the fact that they are in many ways uh, the kingly, the two kingly children. And, and of course they do end up being two kings. The concept of Mashiach ben David and Mashiach ben Yosef is all coming down from this clash in this week's parasha or this near clash, the clash that's avoided. Yehuda is the forefather of David, so Mashiach ben David is a descendant of Yehuda, and Mashiach ben Yosef is, of course, a descendant of Yosef. So the, the root of these two Meshichim are, are within, this, within this situation. How do we know that this is a major, major event, much bigger than what it takes up in the parsha or in the story, and again, it starts with Chazal listening very closely to, to what's going on under the surface. But if we go to the Haftarah, that we read just after we finish the parasha, we read the Haftarah. The Haftarah from this week is in the book of Yechezkel, Ezekiel. It talks that there's a pro- Ezekiel is the prophet, and God tells him that he should take one branch of wood or piece of wood, and he should write on it the name of Yehuda. And he should take another piece of wood or branch, and he should write the name of Ephraim. Ephraim here is one of the two sons of Yosef, but it's it's the son that inherits the kingly uh, attribute. Actually, it's for bo- it goes for both of them. Both Yehuda and Yosef have two sons each, and one of them carries on on the surface carries on the. Uh, the kingly legacy, and the other one, not so much, or not in a revealed way. And in, in both cases, the second son somehow bypasses the first son. Something very interesting, that we see a reflection. Yehuda has two sons, Zerach and Peretz. Zerach is about to be born first, but then Peretz bypasses him as they're being born. And and he goes over him, so to speak, or he pushes him aside and, and jumps. It was in the previous parasha. And, and he carries on the, the kingly torch, we can say, and David comes from him. And on a, in a much later stage in life, something similar happens to Menashe and Ephraim, the two sons of Yosef. Uh, this happens in the next parasha, that Yaakov switches his hands and makes Ephraim the younger one. He gives him the, 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 the more important blessing. So here Ephraim signifies the 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 lineage of Yosef. So the prophet Ezekiel in the Haftarah talks about that God tells him you should take two branches and you should write the two names and then you should bring them closer and connect them, merge them into one branch. And of course what he alludes to are the two kingdoms that they appear in history much, much after Yosef and Yehuda. But the two kingdoms of Yehuda and Israel is really the continuation of the two kingly souls of of Yehuda and Yosef. Israel was his the first king came from Ephraim, that was Yerovam, Jeroboam. He was a descendant of Ephraim and Yosef. So that's the one kingdom that ruled over ten tribes out of the twelve. But he was all led by by a king coming out of Ephraim out of Yosef. And the other kingdom uh, was led by Rechavam, Rehoboam, who was, uh, of course, the son of Solomon, son of David, descendant of Yehuda. So, again, it's a major, the, this whole split between the two kingdoms, which takes place in the, in the fourth generation of the Jewish kingdom. We, first we have King Saul, then we have King David, then we have King Solomon, and then just after Solomon passes away, the split occurs and is never reunited in the history of the Bible. And in many ways, this split is in the center of all Judaism. 
And actually, it was in the center of Judaism from before Yehuda and Yosef clashed, or almost clashed in this parsha. And it goes all the way through the Bible. And in many, many ways, it goes all the way to this very day. And we, we, it's, it's one of the most basic and important things to understand about Judaism is to understand the split between Yosef and Yehuda, between these two branches. That's just, that's like, just like in the, in the prophecy of Ezekiel. He's taking the two branches. He says, this is a terrible rift within the Jewish people, within Judaism, that you must mend. God is telling the prophet Ezekiel, you must take it together and there can only be one king. By the way, he says very interestingly that the king needs to be David. The king needs to be one of the sides, right? He says there, I'm going to read from the Haftarah, and he says, put them, he says, put them into one. The verse is very beautiful, has a lot of oneness in it. He says, take the one and bring it closer to the other one uh, and they will become one wood or one piece of wood and they shall become ones or joined together they, it's a lot of oneness each one of, each one of them is one has a certain oneness to it but there is a greater oneness that needs to occur by them coming closer and then it says the split must end and and they should have one ruler, and then it says the rule there should be no more two kingdoms, no more two nations, and they should leave, of course, all the false idols. And then he says, My my slave David shall rule over them, and he shall be the one shepherd to lead them. But not in a way that one of the sides feels that he was vanquished, but that it would somehow it's all united. Although he very clearly says that David, which is coming from Yehuda, not from Ephraim, needs to rule over them. It, there will be a unity that will appease both sides. So that's something we need to understand how this works. And of course, the true ruler is not David or Yosef. It's really God. This is why David is here called, My slave David shall be king over them. The real king is God. And out of the two uh, persons, or figures, or soul types, that uh, assume to be the king, one of them actually needs to be the king, but in a way that he doesn't feel that he is the king. He feels that he is just a slave, and maybe this is the key to them coming together, and feeling that it wasn't like a fight that one of them, you know, uh, you know, vanquished the other one, or, 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 or humiliated him in any way. They're both very humble, and the king that's coming out of one side of them is also is, is, is the epitome of this humility and that's why they both feel that God is, is, is really is the one who's ruling over them. So this is a very, very basic uh, topic to understand. So now let's see, very, very briefly, or very quickly, let's go over the history of the split. Where did this split come from? And how do we see the split reverberating over Jewish history in many different stages? So we can say that it starts, it really starts even, even, even earlier than this, but the first time we really see it is with the two wives of Yaakov, Rachel and Leah. Yehuda is the son of Leah, and Yosef is the son of Rachel. So it starts with Rachel and Leah. We have these two wives that, uh, for mysterious reasons, Yaakov was needed to marry both of them. And, and second thing, it also is reflected in Yaakov having two names, because we know from Kabbalah that he, that he, it's not it, it wasn't a coincidence that Yaakov fell in love with Rachel and he didn't fall in love with Leah. That's because he still didn't have the name Israel. Only when he got the name Israel was he able to appreciate Leah, because Israel is on the same level as Leah. So the split, the, the fact that he has two wives, is really a reflection of something that's inside Yaakov. It's not just the two wives and later reflected in his two names. Israel more connected to Leah, and therefore to Yehuda, and Yaakov more connected to Rachel, and therefore to Yosef. So before we have, before Yosef and Yehuda are even born, it's within uh, Yaakov's potential, the name he gets after they're born, the, the second name. But of course, this, the split is within him from, from the very beginning. Then of course, we have Yosef and Yehuda, and that's in our parsha. Later on in the desert, we see this in, in uh, under Moses, we see twice 
that two figures operate, and one of them is coming from Ephraim, and the other one is coming from Yehuda. The first instance in the, in the war against Amalek, this is, he's helped, Moshe is raising his hands in order to win the war against um, Amalek, and he's helped on the one side by Chul, who is coming from the tribe of Yehuda, and on the other side by Joshua, Yoshua, who's coming from Ephraim. Later on, when he sends the twelve spies, and ten of them sin, but two of them don't sin, they're the righteous spies, one of them is again Yoshua from Ephraim, the other one is Kalev from Yehuda. Um, later on, when the, the Jewish kingdom begins in the book of Samuel, first we have Saul and then we have David. Saul is not a descendant of Yosef, because he's coming from the tribe of Binyamin, but he is a descendant of Rachel, which makes him closer to Yosef. So he's a bit like Yosef. He's not coming from either Menashe or Ephraim. He's not a direct descendant of Yosef. But the fact that he comes from Binyamin, the second son of Rachel, means that we can put him on the side of the equation that 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 is headed by Yosef. So in a way, Saul is also Yosef-like. right? Binyamin and Yosef are very, very much linked. And Binyamin reminds Yaakov of Yosef. That's why he wants to have him stay. And he and they and they both remind Yaakov of Rachel, right? That's the that that's why he liked Yosef, and that's why he loved Yosef, and that's why he loved Binyamin. So again, Saul comes from Binyamin, but this is again under the rubric of of Yosef, and then David. David comes from Yehuda, and then two generations later with Solomon. Then after Solomon, the kingdom splits. Of course, the split is. Yerovam, uh, like I said before, Jeroboam, uh, coming from the lineage of Yosef, and Rechavam, Rehoboam, son of Solomon, coming from uh, Yehuda. This leads into the whole history recounted in the Book of Kings uh, of the two kingdoms. And in the end of days, it's the two Meshichim, the two Meshichim that need to somehow work together with Mashiach ben Yosef coming before. Mashiach ben David, and also it says that Mashiach ben Yosef will need to die before Mashiach ben David can ascend the throne, which is another thing we have to fully understand. We, we actually need to know something else that I didn't say before, which is that we actually know extremely little about Mashiach ben Yosef. So Mashiach in general, as I said, is a, is a very elusive concept because it alludes to the end of days. It alludes to something that's beyond the rational mind. The whole idea that there is a redemption to the world is something that doesn't make sense if you're a, re- a completely rational human being, uh, because it means the end of the world as we know it, and the and the and the world changing in a way that's hard to imagine, and appears something very dreamy, and. And many people suspect that it's only a, a kind of escapist fantasy. Uh, but of course, we, we, we hold on to it as a faith. But we know, rationally, we know it's a bit crazy. So the whole concept of Mashiach is very strange. But out of the two Mashiachim, Mashiach ben Yosef is even stranger, because he's hardly mentioned. He's mentioned only once in the Gemara, in the Talmud, and that he's going to be there and he's going to die before Mashiach ben David appears. And... And, for example, Maimonides, the Rambam, which was unique in writing a halachic book which actually talks about the Messianic age, uh, doesn't mention him one, for, even for an instant. He doesn't mention Mashiach ben Yosef at all. And yet, there's something about him that excites the, the, the imagination and that people are very much curious about, right? Which is why we're doing this class. Um, now, another thing we need to see about this history is that this history is full of role reversal, and things be, being flipped upside down. And this, this leads us to the main point. So we see it from the very beginning. Leah is the firstborn. She's the elder daughter. Uh, however, when Yaakov meets, uh, meets them, he first meets Rachel and falls in love with Rachel and doesn't appreciate Leah. Leah is the elder one, but Yaakov meets Rachel first, falls in love with Rachel first. Although Yaakov meets Rachel, falls in love with Rachel, he ends up marrying Leah first, which reflects her being born first. He didn't want this to happen so, so it's the second reversal. 
It's first it's the age they were born, then it's the order that he met and fell in love with them, and then it's the order that he marries them. It's it's you know it's called Hebrew it's called a fuch alafuch. It's you flip it you flip it again, and leah, uh, which is less loved, gives birth to more children before Rachel. Rachel ends, ends up having far less children and only at a far later age. However, their maidservant is the other way around. It's Rachel's maidservant who gives birth first, and only then Leah's maidservant. And and also we know that the actual maidservants themselves were also flipped, because Leah got the younger maidservant, and Rachel the, the older one. Um, Rachel the beloved ended up not being buried with Yaakov. Leah the less beloved is buried with Yaakov in the Me'arat HaMachpelah in Hebron. Um, Again, later on, Yehuda is older than Yosef, but Yosef becomes king in Egypt, and Yehuda bows down before him. Uh, although Yehuda down, bows down before him, the Kabbalistic explanation for our parsha, for the, the verb of Ayigash, the, the description of Yehuda approaching Yosef, is that what's happening here is another role reversal. Is that this is Yehuda, Yehuda's kingly nature is coming to the form, and who breaks down? Who backs? Who backs down? Right in this tense conflict, it's it's Yosef. He break, backs down, breaks down, crying. In a way, it's this you know who blinks first kind of competition, and it's Yosef who blinks first. And Yosef and Yehuda in many ways is now becoming the real king. And this is the reason Mashiach ben David is the ultimate Mashiach, not Mashiach ben Yosef. It starts in this parsha. So it all started with the Yosef, the younger one. Being, being pushed down, but he's been elevated in Egypt, and Yehuda fulfilling the, the dream prophecy and bowing down before him, but in our parasha, it's reversed again, and Yehuda becomes, in many ways, superior to Yosef. Um, uh, again, later we have this, that Saul, pre- Saul comes first, he's the first king, but he is not a very good king, he ends up not being a very, it starts good, but he ends up being a, uh, not a good king, and he's replaced by uh, by David. On the other hand, we have this uh, immense, incredible friendship between David and Yonatan, the son of Saul, that they love each other very much. right? The, the Saul and David are enemies, but David and Saul's son, Yonatan, are the best of friends. Um, later on, we see Rechavam, son of Solomon, he's the son of the king. He should inherit the kingdom. He's the, the, he's the the descendant of Yehuda, the descendant of David and Solomon. However, he's far less impressive than Yerovam. Yerovam, he gets to rule over ten tribes, not just two. And he and he is also a greater figure, a more impressive figure. He sins, his kingdom becomes worse off, but he has the bigger potential in the beginning. Um, in fact, it's even said, there's this whole beautiful uh, midrash, that tells us that God came to Jeroboam, to Yeravam, directly, right? He's the head of the, the first king of the kingdom of Israel, which is going to be the kingdom that sins more, that's having more idolatry, that's worse off, that has the, 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 the worst kings, and that's in a way pushed out of the Jewish legacy. And, um, and he tells him, Go back from your evil deeds, and you, me, and the son of Yishai, that is David, will all walk together in, in the Garden of Eden. You're an amazing, high, holy soul, God tells Yerovam. Just go back out of this. He, he was a slave. That's another reverse, right? Rechavam was the son, but Yerovam is a slave. The slave is a much greater figure. So God tells him, Go back on your evil deeds, and you can walk with me in the Garden of Eden. And so Yeravam tells him, but who will go first, David or me? So God tells him, well, it's David. Like we saw in the prophecy, that the two branches need to come together, but David has to be the king. That's how it needs to be. We need to understand why, but that's how it needs to be. So when Yeravam hears this, he says, I'm not interested. I'm going to continue with my evil deeds, and I'm going to make the kingdom of Israel a idol-worshipping kingdom, and I'm going to put two golden calves in the, where, instead of uh, the holy temple, and, 
and but his root again was extremely high again but again it's reversed and again we have this that in the very end very similar to Saul and David we have Mashiach ben Yosef coming first but then dying and passing the mantle to Mashiach ben David a lot of reversals now we want to understand uh, what it all means so before we get to the to the explanation that in a way puts it all together and we still have to get to the third figure in the end don't forget I want to start out with something that maybe for for Americans they don't know it so much but if you live in Israel or if you belong to the group of what is called the religious Zionists the world of the the Tilumi world students of Rabbi Cook uh, this is something that they think about a lot and they have a very famous explanation for this which comes from Rabbi Cook himself and it's based on ideas that come from Hagra, the Vilna Gaon it's put in a book called Kol Hator a highly debatable book but a book widely accepted in the, the Tilumi circles uh, which talks about many things that are destined to happen as we near the end of days or the time of redemption and Rabbi Cook took some of these elements and most famously he put them in his eulogy for Herzl Theodor Herzl the founder of secular Zionism so when Herzl died uh, Rav Cook um, gave him a eulogy and it was a very Torah eulogy and in this eulogy, he made the very dramatic insinuation that Herzl, who was very secular, but also was very much uh, desired and did dedicated his life to the Zionist cause, which is bringing all the Jewish people back to the land of Israel and having them, uh, that they would have an independent state. Uh, and of course, Rabbi Cook is very famous for trying to find the merits of the secular Zionist movement and not simply brush them off as, you know, secular or heretic. And he's, he always tried to look at the potential and to see their role in the, in, the, in the process of redemption. He was very much interested in trying to figure out how the process of redemption works. Apropos what we said in the beginning about whether we focus on the dimensions of place, space, time, or soul, so when he was talking about when Rabbi Cook was talking about redemption, he was he he was dedicated a lot of thought to the dimension of time, to the processes. So how could he make this insinuation that Herzl is a kind of Mashiach ben Yosef? So it's based on the following symbolism, uh, which we're going to present, but then we're going to critique a little bit. We're going to see that it's the we need to find a fuller, more comprehensive picture, which incorporates these ideas, but they're incorporated into a, into a larger scheme. So what Rabbi Cook said was this, in this uh, eulogy. He said, um, he said that Mashiach ben Yosef and the whole lineage of Yosef rectifies the physical aspects of things and um, Mashiach ben David and the lineage of David rectifies the spiritual aspect of things. And, and then he said, he said, the reason Mashiach ben Yosef comes first is that first you need to rectify the physical level of things, the physical realm. You need to build a state. It doesn't matter if it's secular or not because we're talking about the physical realm. You, you, first you need to save the actual people and you need to, to, to save the body, the Jewish body, and this is the body political, we can say. You, first you build the political body, which is the state, and this is what Mashiach ben Yosef does. And then you pour the soul into the body, so to speak. As in, this is what Mashiach ben, Yosef, uh, sorry, Mashiach ben David is, is meant to do. Um, what are the foundations for this idea? Yosef was the son of Rachel. Rachel was the more beautiful on the outside uh, sister. That is, she had to do. She was identified in Kabbalah with the 
the revealed world, the physical world. So Yosef belongs to the physical world because he's the son of Rachel. Yosef is the one who uh, uh, hands out bread to everyone. He, again, he gives them actual physical sustenance. He gives them bread and he saves them physically, his brothers, and he saves Egypt very physically. And also, he takes care of all the logistics in Egypt. He's the logistic masters, master. He takes care of the physical redemption. That's what Rev. Rev. Cook is talking about. And same, by the way, goes for King Saul. King Saul built the foundations for it there being a kingdom, but it was, relatively speaking, more on the physical side of things, not spiritual. Yehuda is the opposite. Yehuda is the son of Leah. Leah was always had the inner beauty. She reflects the hidden spiritual realm or world. And, and therefore Yehuda is more spiritual. Yehuda, his name contains the name of God. Four out of his five letters, it's the name of God himself. And he brings the final redemption. The final redemption is, of course, when all the world knows God. It's knowledge of God. And, and same goes for David after Saul, who was a more spiritual uh, savior, in the sense that he, uh, he, you know, he wrote Psalms, and he, he, was, he, he started building the temple, which Saul didn't. All this are many, many hints that this symbolism works. But it works. We can say that Mashiach ben Yosef rectifies the physical, Mashiach ben David rectifies the, the spiritual. And, and for religious Zionists, and for students of Rabbi Cook, this has become absolutely solid. And, and they refer to it as if it's the most obvious thing, and they're un, un, you know, undebated and unquestioned. Uh, you know, uh, it's absolutely clear that Mashiach ben Yosef is all about physicality, because they grew up on this, and it's very, very fundamental and solid to them. And, uh, and this is how they see secular Zionism, this, this Zionism. They see secular Zionism as building this physical foundation. And now it's up to us, uh, those who still observe the commandments and are connected to their Jewish religion and tradition, to, uh, to be, in a way, Mashiach ben David. Now, what's problematic about this? Right? It seems to work. And there are a lot of details about Yosef and Yehuda, or Yosef and David, that seem to uh, to corroborate this. However, there are other details which uh, suggest the absolute opposite. Yosef is a totally righteous person. How can we say that he deals with physicality? He's the most holy, spiritual, righteous individual there is. He's a man of dreams. He lives in the, in, in the realm of dreams. He is able to be completely separate from the G Egyptian kingdom. They're all very, very base and physical. And he remains steadfast in his connection to his spiritual root, which is also connected to his father. And he lives in a very coarse place, but he doesn't let this coarse place taint his spirituality. He's able to interpret dreams because he has this connection to something very, very high. And he doesn't mix with, with the earthly reality. And in fact, he is called Yosef HaTzadik, Yosef the Righteous One. He's the epitome of, of being the one who is able to remain holy uh, before the, the temptations of this world. He's, he, the wife of Potiphar, his master, tries to seduce him, but he, he refuses to, uh, to, to follow her seduction. He's, how, can, how can you compare a secular movement that, wants, that doesn't care about all this and wants to create a totally secular nationalistic society or national-centered society? Uh, and also, by the way, another thing is Yosef is very universal. He speaks all 70 languages. He wants to create something very universal. He's not about... And he operates outside of the land of Israel. He operates in, in, in the outside world. So he's in the physical world, but he's always connected to something higher, and he and he knows all languages, something very universal and very spiritual, which doesn't go together with the with the with the secular Zionism, which is a national movement about creating a national uh, physical home for the Jews. And also, Yehuda is the opposite of being of appearing someone so spiritual. Yehuda is. Uh, 
he he descends before you know he he he's, he's, he has this very complex history of you know cheating Tamar out of marrying the third son and then thinking that she's a prostitute going with her and he's the one who proposed that they would sell Yosef and and then he ends up being very elevated but he's well he's about tshuva He's someone who does tshuva, who repents. He's a master of repentance. Same for David. David, he's a man who has a lot of, you know, desires and urges. He's very human. And he's not, he's not a righteous person. He's not someone who is, like, the, like it sounds from Hagra and Rav Kook, that they talk about uh, Mashiach ben David as the most spiritual figure. Uh, he, he's spiritual only because he knows that he, he sins and he can fall down. And he's liable to fall down because he knows his, his physical humanity is connected to it very much. And he knows that he's liable to sin. And he actually does sin. And then he repents for his sin. And he admits that he was wrong. Yehuda admits that he was wrong before Tamar. And then David admits that he's wrong before the Nathan the prophet. But all this is coming from that they have a lot of very physical desires. And they come from this realm. But then they do tshuva. They repent. So how can we bring this together? But on the other hand, Rav Kook also sounds very convincing. So what do we do with all of this? So the answer comes when we understand the Kabbalistic symbolism behind these two figures. And the Kabbalistic symbolism is that these two figures correspond to the last two Kabbalistic sefirot. Yosef corresponds to the sefira of Yesod, foundation. That's the one before last sefira. And Yehuda corresponds to the final sefirah, which is called Malchut, or Kingdom. These two sefirot are like a pair, and there's a union between them, there's a tension, that's the tension we see in this parasha. There's also a very, very deep complementation and union between them. Now, how does this correspondence to these two sefirot help us bridge, or bring together, the more, uh, uh, the, the Rav, Rav Kook's, uh, symbolism and correspondence that Mashiach ben Yosef is physical and Mashiach ben David is spiritual and the other side of the symbolism which by the way are more prevalent in Kabbalah and in Chabad especially and if you read Chabad it sounds like the very opposite of Rav Kook because again David is a Baal Tshuva he's coming from the physical and Yosef is a, is a righteous person he's coming from the spiritual so if we look at Yosef, at Yesod in Malchut, what we get is two movements. It's two trajectories. Yesod, foundation, is connected to something very spiritual, very high, but it goes downwards. It faces physical reality, not because it's associated or connected to physical reality, but exactly because it's the opposite, it's coming from the spiritual level. And Malchut is the opposite. Malchut is a lower sefira. It's embedded in physical reality, but it looks upwards. It, it, you know, it raises its eyes upwards, and it moves upwards. So these two sefirot create two movements. And when you have an upward-going movement and a downward-going movement, you're able to combine the, the two interpretations. So now let's put it all together. Yosef is the, is the foundation. He's the righteous person, the tzaddik. His starting point is the opposite of what Rabbi Cook said. His starting point is righteousness and spirituality and being a, a man of dreams and a man of truth and a man who's very holy and very, um, you know, distinct from physical reality. He rises above it. He floats above it. And he's completely untainted by physical reality. That's his starting point. However, as he moves downwards, the, the trajectory of his life, of his destiny, is to go further and further down, down to Egypt, down to the pit, down to being the, a ruler and of, of carrying, taking care of the logistics of Egypt, down to giving everyone bread. But the reason he's able to take care of reality so much is not because he's a physical type. He's not a physical type. He's a spiritual type. He's so spiritual 
that his his physical reality doesn't affect him. It doesn't change him. He's so so rooted in spirituality that he's able to go down into the physical realm and rectify it, and he and it doesn't, you know, uh, break him or change him or or taint him or make him lose his spirituality. He goes down and he fixes it. Yehuda, again, his starting point is the opposite of Rabbi Cook of the, his of his, you know, symbolism. But he goes in that direction. His starting point is being very, very physical, not spiritual. He starts off being in the physical realm, also David, with their urges and desires. But as he sins and falls and realizes his mistakes, he, he begins to repent. And repentance means that he starts looking upwards and then he's, he's going, and then he's starting, he's starting to move in the direction of the divine, the spiritual, the sublime, and all of this. But it comes, not because he's a spiritual type, it's because he's a physical type, but he wants to go upwards. And so Yosef is, Yosef and Yehuda begin as foundation and kingdom, Yesod and Malchut, opposite of what Rabbi Cook spoke about, but their trajectories lead them to a role reversal. As we saw that all throughout history, these two figures of Judaism are constantly revolving, and their roles are reversed. So the main reversal here is that Yehuda is coming back. If you remember, he's the son of Leah. Leah was the more spiritual mother, but he descended from his spiritual root embodied in his mother. But he's reascending as a Baal Tshuva, as a returnee, as a, repent, as, a, as a man of repentance. Yosef was the son of the beautiful, this worldly sister, Rachel. But he became very righteous, very holy. But now he's going back to her realm. They're both going back to the realm of their mother, of their respective mother. But again, it's, it, it, so it ends up that Rav Kook was, was saying something very true. It's very true that Yosef takes care of the physical realm, whereas Yehuda is constantly looking for the spiritual realm. But it's not because Yehuda is a spiritual type and Yosef is a physical type, but the very opposite. Yosef is a spiritual type, and, but, and, and through his spirituality, he goes down into the physical world and deals with it. And Yehuda is the opposite. He starts as the physical type and becomes a, a man of repentance, goes upwards. And but and this is all, by the way, symbolized by their their having two sons. The first son reflects their nature, and then their second son, which bypasses the first son, symbolizes their reversal of their character. For Yosef, Ephraim becoming the king is symbolic of Yosef going into the physical realm, which is the opposite of his nature. And for Yehuda, having Peretz bypass Zerach is symbolic of Yehuda also going beyond his nature and going towards the spiritual. Um, now the idea is, is, is this. They, these two Meshichim teach us something very important about ourselves. They teach us that, let's, let's go with the regular order. First Mashiach ben Yosef comes and then Mashiach ben David comes. Mashiach ben Yosef means that, just like Rabbi Cook said, but in a different way, we have to tweak it. It's not just tweaking, it's a, it's a major modification, but it, it really incorporates Rabbi Cook into a bigger scheme, as I said. Starting with Mashiach ben Yosef means you have to first rectify the physical, it's true. But you rectify the physical, the way to rectify the physical is to do everything in your power to be very, very beyond the physical, to connect to root yourself in Torah, in study. Yosef in Kabbalah personifies being a student of Torah. Again, the opposite of what Rabbi Cook said. He's a student of the Torah. Ephraim is also has to do with being fruitful in the Torah, with a lot of chidushei Torah, a lot of having constantly being uh, filled by Torah in a way that uh, fertilizes me that I'm able to have constant new ideas from the Torah. So I, in order to rectify the physical, I actually need, as, an, as a preface to becoming like Yosef, right? Yosef is before David, 
So I want to be like Yosef. You want to be like Yosef means I have to be a righteous person. I have to go, I have to run away from the physical realm completely. Right? Rachel is physical. But her son Yosef is very, very spiritual. And I have to be like Yosef. I have to dedicate my life to Torah, to spirituality, to being connected to something very, very high. Once I've detached myself from the physical realm, I can go back and rectify it in a way that it doesn't threaten me, confuse me, you know, pull me back in, suck me back into its physicality. I have to be so, um, you know, with a kind of equanimity before the physical realm that it doesn't, it doesn't bother me because I'm so connected, I'm so rooted in spirituality, I can, I can go down there and I can deal with everything this world uh, needs me to be, you know, which means very much here and now. David is the one who brings the spirituality. But he doesn't bring the spirituality because, again, he's a spiritual type, but because he knows his own physicality and physical faults and weaknesses. And this is the opposite movement. That's why it's hard to tell who comes first. And and in, in and before we have Yosef and David, and we can say Mashiach ben Yosef comes before Mashiach ben David, when we look at the mothers, it's the opposite. Right? First we have... Um, well, it's, it's also confusing. Um, we can say that first, the firstborn is Leah, and Leah is the mother of David. In a way, I have to be like Leah before I'm like Rachel, right? It's, I have to first be um, connected to my physicality in the sense that I have humility because I know that I'm liable to sin and fall and liable to be imperfect. And that's how I reach true spirituality. It's not something that I imagine. Now we have to say something else that's very important about these two figures. Because it's really, again, it's two sides of Judaism. Yosef is righteous. But he also has this dream. He's a dreamer. He has a dream of perfection. He wants everything to be perfect. And he finds it very hard to fail and to fall. He doesn't know how to fail and to fall. King Saul doesn't know how to fail. He doesn't admit his faults. And that's why he breaks. Jeroboam, Yeruvam, the king, he was a high soul, but he wasn't able to be second. He wasn't able to admit his faults, and his kingdom became worse off. There's something very fragile or unstable about dreaming about this perfection all the time. This is what Yosef is all about. David knows that everything is imperfect because he's coming from the physical world. He doesn't start with these spiritual fantasies of a perfect world. He starts with in this world, in an imperfect world. So he, there's something more uh, that's always ready to grow and learn, learn out of mistakes. He knows how to make mistakes. David readily acknowledges, admits that he makes a mistake. Yehuda admits that he makes a mistake. Because they know how to break down, how to fall and fail and rise again, there's something about David and Yehuda that's more eternal. That's, that, that's why they, they end up being the king. That's why the, when the two branches come together, it's David ruling over them. The, in, at, the end of, at the end of the whole story, it's, it's the Baal Tshuva, the returnee, the repenter, who knows his physicality, his imperfection, his uh, faults, and he's able to rise through that, and by virtue of that, that ends up being the servant of God. Someone remarked here that the word slave is in inappropriate, and the word, the better in English, in Hebrew is the same word, but in English the word servant. David is a servant of God, and, and he's a servant of God because he's aware again of his faults and, and failings. Now we have to bring this all together and add the third figure because now we really have to finish. Uh, in the Zohar it said that the coming of Mashiach will have three stages. Mashiach ben Yosef is the first, Mashiach ben David is the second, and then the third one, which we haven't mentioned at all, is called in the language of the Zohar, Ra'aya Mehemna, which means the faithful shepherd, or the reliable shepherd. And faithful is better, the faithful shepherd. A shepherd of faith, who's also faithful or, or reliable. 
and which is really Moshe. That's another figure, another messianic figure. It's neither Yosef nor Yehuda, it's Moshe. He's the one who took us out of Egypt, he's the one who will bring us to the final redemption. Now the best way, because we have to finish now, but the best way to think about these three stages, and it really, really brings all of this together, is to, is to see all three character types as three stages of growth of the one Mashiach. And this one Mashiach is within each and every one of us. And Yosef being an early manifestation of it, David being a more mature manifestation of it, and the Raya Mehemna, the faithful shepherd, which is Moshe, being the, the, the highest of all of them, and the, more, the most mature stage. So very briefly, it goes like this. First, we, need to be Mashi- we all need to be Mashiach ben Yosef. Mashiach ben Yosef means that we need to have lofty dreams of perfection. We need to aspire to a perfect reality, to an to a absolute spirituality, to absolute holiness, absolute connection to God. And although it's fragile, and although there's something immature about it, and although it's liable to break, as all such radical ideas break eventually, it's an extremely important stage in the coming of Mashiach. There's a stage in the coming of Mashiach, in each and every one of us, that we, sometimes it happens when we're teenagers, and if it happens later on, we need to somehow bring back this teenager spirit, teen spirit, uh, which is that we can, we allow ourselves to dream of a perfect utopia, and not to shy away uh, by people telling us that it's unrealistic. Yosef is not a realistic person. He's a dreamer. And although all the lineage, Saul, that breaks because he doesn't admit his faults, it's coming from the same, it's unwillingness to compromise. We need to start, as, as weird as that may sound, we need to start with an unwillingness to compromise because this is how we all hold on to perfect, lofty ideals. And that's the first stage. These are chaotic lights. That's how it's called. Yosef is the epitome of the chaotic stage of the messianic idea. The messianic ideal. All the false prophets, in a way, there are many false prophets, Jews and non-Jews, throughout history. In a way, they all come from something very positive and very true, which is that the, the evolution of this thing called Mashiach needs to begin with a dreamer who, in a way, um, doesn't accept compromise. And, but in Yosef, it's, it's, it's a very holy stage, it's a very good stage. All the false Meshichim had this, but they, they did it in a wrong way. But he does it in a, in a good way, because it's very authentic for him, within him. It's very authentic. So Yosef, Mashiach ben Yosef, is like a teenager who has amazing, crazy dreams of a utopia, Utopia, the word in, in English or Latin, utopia, means no place. U topos. Topos is a place. U is nowhere. No place. Utopia, is, it doesn't exist. It's, it's a dream. It's not here. But we need to have this dream. So Yosef, Mashiach ben Yosef is a teenager. The, one of the first things we said about him is that he, Hayanar, Nar is like a, a young boy, a young man. He's a young, that's, that's how his story begins when he's 17. And that's when he has his dreams, when he's 17. He's a dreamer, he's a, he's, a teen, he's a dreamy teenager. And that's the first stage. And now he dies. What does it mean that he dies? This is like the world of chaos, of chaotic lights breaking. Everything that's so radical, so extreme, so dreamy, you know, a dream ends, it shatters, and we wake up. And the teenager is finally, you know, crashes against the rocks of, of reality. And it's part of the natural process. This is how it should be. So, this is why the Mashiach ben Yosef dies. This dreamer needs to awaken, needs to realize that the dreams can't be directly, you know, realized in this world in such a simplistic way that he first thinks. So, there's something has to shatter. And this is the kind of inner death that we all need to go through 
that we need to realize that this teenager is very naive and very simplistic and it doesn't work this way. It comes when you're coming to reality from above to below, right? Your safe is coming from above to below and but as he, he crash lands as when he's coming from above to below and this is the death or the shatter the shattering of the dream. Then the next stage is David. And this is the it's the central stage and it's the main stage. This is why Mashiach generally is called David. David is a mature version of Yosef. And he falls. He he, he crash landed. He fell down. He he realized that he's faulty, that he's imperfect, that he's liable to sin or dream or make mistakes. And then he learns how to repent and admit his mistakes. And then this is this is what maturity is all about. Is, is acknowledging your faults and saying, I was wrong, I made a mistake, and I need to learn, I need to learn over and over, I need to fall and learn, fall and learn, and fall and rise again. David is the riser, the one who, who goes upwards, and he goes upwards because he knows what it means to break, right? He died. When he was Yosef, he died, and then he became David. It's all us, it's all one person, one, one journey. And then he starts growing, and he becomes the mature version. And then, and this is the, the, the vessels of rectification. The first stage, Yosef is a chaotic Mashiach, David is a rectified Mashiach, and he's rectified because he's coming out of the, the broken vessels of the previous Mashiach. This was, is what makes him so rectified. And then the final stage, which is Moshe, where is Moshe coming into this picture? The image of Mashiach is that Mashiach will be the soul of Moshe in the body of David. Physically, he needs to be descended from David, but he also needs to be a reincarnation of Moshe. So the idea is that as David grows and matures, the soul of Moshe impregnates within him. And, and in a way, this is a combination of Yosef and David, because we know that Moshe took the bones of Yosef out of Egypt and carried them all the way to Eretz Israel. The bones of Yosef is like the essence of Yosef. Moshe is the mature, is the essence of Yosef's light being put into the rectified vessels of David. So it's all David, because David is the mature Yosef, and David is the vessel for the light of Moshe coming into him. So all these three figures are named after the middle figure, David. It's all David, it's all Mashiach, Mashiach ben David. This is why the Rambam doesn't talk about Mashiach ben Yosef. This is why the, the Talmud barely talks about Mashiach ben Yosef. And this is why we would simply say Mashiach, we mean David. David is the central figure. He is the mature Yosef, and he's a vessel for the lights and soul of Moshe, the Torah scholar, the teacher, who has a very mature Torah to teach everyone that, that's going into the vessels. And so, again, it appears to be three figures. It's really one figure. It's all of us. We need to be the teenage dreamer who dreams for perfection and breaks. And it's okay to break. After we break, we need to become the repentant David or Yehuda, the Mashiach ben David, which admits his mistakes and, and becomes the real Mashiach. David, Avdi, Melech Alehem Leolam, my servant David will become king over them forever. And then he's impregnated by the, the most mature stage, which is the soul of Moshe that comes into him and also brings with it the essence, the forgotten essence of Yosef, and now it's the lights of chaos in vessels of rectification, and this is the full picture of the messianic journey that we all need to go through in our lives.